I invite you to turn this morning to Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 28, as we continue on in our What Is series, kind of a beginning, our series that kind of explores what I think are some of the basics of the Christian faith. And this morning, the question we're going to answer in this series is, what is justification? So the short answer to that question is, justification is how God forgives our sins. And we're answering this question second in our series because I think, and the Reformation thought, that along with our doctrines of the Bible and the Trinity and the Incarnation, justification is one of the most important things that we believe as Christians. Justification by faith alone, and we're going to talk about that, stands at the foundation of our life with God and also at the foundation of our life with our neighbor. Because when God forgives our sins in Jesus, when he justifies us, he radically and irreversibly changes our relationship to him. And that then radically changes how we can relate to everyone else who sins against us. Uh, so the majority of the sermon is going to focus on how God forgives us in Christ. But I want to start by reflecting on what a powerful impact that forgiveness can have in the lives of actual Christians. <clears throat> so in November 8, 2019, uh, a story came out in the Denver News about a woman who had adopted the man who murdered her three-year-old son. From prison, he had written to her, he had confessed his sins, and he'd asked for her forgiveness. And this woman, who is a Christian, was deeply torn in her heart by what she read, because on the one hand, as a Christian, she wanted to be open to his confession, and on the other hand, her son, and all that was robbed from him and from them, continued to cry out in pain in her heart. And so she prayed, and the words of the Bible kept coming to her mind, words that we talked about last Sunday that revive the soul. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Now, this wasn't something that was done right away. She talks about how they spent years getting counseling with other Christians as he figured out more and more what it meant to repent and as she figured out more and more what it meant to forgive. And together they figured out how to be reconciled. But still, it happened because God had forgiven her. Because she was justified in Jesus, a Christian woman could forgive her son's murderer and be reconciled to him in one of the most profound ways imaginable. Justification is that powerful. Uh, so let's talk about justification. We'll read Romans 3, 21 through 28, and then we'll reflect on, reflect on why we need justification, how Jesus accomplishes our justification, and how we receive justification. I believe those points are on the, the wall there. And let me just say before we read, this is not going to be a long sermon, but I'm praying that it will be an important one. Uh, so let's read and pray, and then we'll talk about justification. Romans 3, starting in verse 21. <clears throat> but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and 
are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. And Lord, we pray as we reflect on this wonderful doctrine of justification, which uh, you have explained to us so wonderfully in Scripture, uh, that it would uh, open our eyes to the depth of the riches that we have received from you in Christ, and that it would make our hearts uh, to be more overflowing with the love which you, are yourself, you yourself have poured into them through your Holy Spirit. Father, may the words of my mouth as your preacher and the meditation of our hearts as those called to hear and respond to your word, may it all now be pleasing in your sight. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So the first thing we're going to talk about is why we need justification. Uh, so let me just start off by saying that my goal here is that we come away from this sermon as enraptured and transformed and empowered by this idea of justification uh, in the way that Paul himself clearly was. You can tell when someone is wrapped up in an idea by how often they talk about it. Uh, so, you know, when a kid gets into a new sport or a new toy or a new story, uh, it comes up all the time when it captures their imagination, right? And, and not just kids. When I get into something new, I'm reading about it, I'm talking about it, I'm annoying my family about it for weeks, the idea of justification is the same for Paul. He says in verse 24, which we're going to talk about, that we're justified by God's grace. In verses 26 and 28, which we'll also talk about, he says that in Christ, God becomes both just and the justifier of those who have faith in Jesus, and that we are justified by faith apart from works of the law. And then in chapter 4, Paul talks about how Abraham himself was justified by faith. And as we heard in Romans 5, Paul talks about, you know, how we are justified by faith and have peace with God. And I could go on, not just in Romans, but in his other letters as well. This idea of justification is deeply embedded in Paul's heart, and it comes up over and over and over again. And I would submit to you that this idea is so important that Paul views it as central to the gospel, which back in chapter 1, which we didn't read, but is very important, Paul says he is not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. The gospel that moved Paul to endure alienation from his friends and family and endure hatred and poverty and stoning and shipwreck and imprisonment he endured all of that so that he could talk to the world about the justification that God offers in the gospel. Why did this grip him so much? 
Well, because, because Paul knows that God is going to judge all of us. All of us. As Paul says in chapter 2, verse 6, I'm going to read it here. He, that is God, will render to each one of us according to his works. By which he means the way that you lived with God and with your neighbor, the way that I live with God and my neighbor, the way uh, that we talk about them, the way that we treat them, the way that we love them or don't love them, will be the basis for God's judgment that you are either righteous or unrighteous. And as Paul goes on to say in verse 7 of chapter 2, the very next verse, I'm going to read that here, to those who by patience and well-doing, meaning doing good works, seek for glory and honor and immortality, he, God, will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. Paul knows that when we meet God, we are going to be judged. And if we lived an evil life, we will meet God's enduring and perfect justice, which is what is meant by hell. And if we have lived a good life, we will meet God's enduring and perfect peace, which is what is meant by heaven. Well, that sounds good, right? Just live a good life. I live a pretty good life. I'm going to be okay. Heaven, here I come. But Paul recognizes, though, that whatever good we've lived just won't be good enough. So in chapter 1, Paul talks about the Gentiles, so non-Jews, non-Israelites. Uh, and he talks about how they lived lives that were out of alignment with God's goodness and justice. And that this misalignment has, revealed, has been revealed in how they live with each other. So at the end of chapter 1, starting in verse 28, which I'm going to read, Paul says this. Listen to it. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, wanting something that your neighbor has, that you being upset that you don't have it. Malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, picking fights, deceit, maliciousness, being mean. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent. Who are you to tell me what to do? Haughty. I'm better than you. Boastful. Look at me. They are inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, which means they don't know how to live for God, faithless. They don't keep their promises and can't be relied on to do what you want, they expect them to do. Heartless. Toughen up. You're fine. Stop crying, you big baby. Ruthless whatever it takes to get ahead. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. I've been reading a, a bunch of political history recently, and I read that idea, and I was reminded of uh, LBJ, the president, who said he may be a person, a jerk, but he's our jerk. 
They give approval to those who practice them. Now, this list would have been surprising for a culture that prided itself on ethics and virtue and that devoted itself to pursuing what they called the good life, meaning a life lived well that was aimed at living for that which is intrinsically good. And they would have looked at themselves and said, we're doing okay. Paul looks at that culture and he says, no, you got to look again. You have a problem. Your best life now looks like pride and self-righteousness and greed and broken promises and murder and the approval of those who love themselves above all things and do whatever it takes to get ahead. If you were really good, you and your culture would look markedly different. It would look like heaven if you were really good. So when you meet God in judgment, whatever good you did, and as Paul will say, I think maybe surprisingly to some of us in verses 14 and 15 of chapter 2, God will recognize that in fact, people did do good sometimes. But still, there's all of this evil. And that evil will far outweigh the good. And their good works will not even come close to meeting God's just demands for the sin and the wickedness that we have done to those whom God has created in his image and calls his creation. Now, I know in our minds, we sort of can loosely connect the Gentiles with non-Christians, which means that as Christians, we can hear this list and we can think to ourselves, or worse, we can say out loud, man, the world is terrible. I'm glad that I'm not like them. Like in Jesus's parable, where the Pharisee, right, the religious person, prays to God and says, thank you, God, that I'm not like this tax collector and sinner over here. And then the tax collector refuses to lift his eyes up to heaven, beats his chest in mourning and says, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And then Jesus says, I tell you, that man, the tax collector, went home justified, is what Jesus says. I think Paul was familiar with this parable because Paul then turns to his own people, and I think to himself, and he turns to us and our own self-righteousness and points out that we are still sinners too, just like the rest of humanity. So he says in verse 17 of chapter 2, and I'm going to read this. This is to us. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law, I know the Bible, and boast in God, Jesus is my praise, and you know his will. Have you read the Ten Commandments? And approve of what is excellent. I just love when God tells me I need to be murdered. so good. And you do that because you're instructed from the law. And if you're sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, let me teach you. A light to those in darkness. They really need me to be there to shape them up. An instructor to the foolish. You know, they could really use some discipleship. I think I'm going to go give this to them. A teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment and knowledge of truth. You then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that you must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. For it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. 
And I can't read that but help to think about our experience of Christian pastors, not you know, seemingly all the time, who get up and who rail against adultery only to be exposed to being serial adulterers. Do you think maybe Paul was familiar with that? And just to bring this home, because I'm not sure that any of us have directly experienced that particular thing in our congregational life, and because I think it's important for us to reflect on this in a way that's meaningful, I think if Paul were writing, we're making this point today, I can't help but think he'd add this. You who preach about gentleness and turning the other cheek, do you joke about or even outright threaten violence against people with who you don't agree with? Do you cheer on violence and and, uh, and hate? The church has the same problem the world does. We're all sinners. And not just the church, me, us, right? I preach about Christians needing to be patient. And then my kids can tell you when I'm on the road, I'm the most impatient person in the world. I preach about Christians needing to forgive, but there's people that I don't want to forgive. I preach about being kind and gentle, but I can be harsh and selfish. You're a sinner. I'm a sinner. We're all sinners. Which is why Paul says in chapter 3, verse 11, none is righteous. No, not one. Which means when we all meet God in judgment, we all deserve death. And that the good things that we've done are not capable of freeing us from that judgment. So, how is life with God possible? It's possible because for our God, nothing is impossible. And as the Bible says, our God is the God who makes a way when there is no way. He's gracious and merciful and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And he relents from disaster. I love that Old Testament description of God's character. And he shows us this character, and he does all this for us in Jesus. So in verse 21 of chapter 3, our chapter, we get what uh, is being considered throughout the church history, the great transition in the book of Romans. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, Although the law and prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God that is through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Jesus is how we live. Jesus is how we're justified. He is how we can be forgiven. Here's why. First, that phrase, the righteousness of God, means the good deeds we need to do to live well with God and with each other. So love is part of the righteousness of God. That is a righteous deed. Kindness is a righteous deed. Compassion is a righteous deed. Justice and equity and honesty and truth are righteous deeds. So is mercy, holiness, patience, loyalty, faithfulness. All the things that you need to give to others to live well with them according to the Bible. Whether that's God or your neighbor, that's essentially what the righteousness of God is is and paul says that in jesus the righteousness of god that we need to live has now been manifested which means revealed displayed 
shown apart from the law, meaning apart from what you and I do. Although, he says, the law and the prophets bear witness to it. And the law and the prophets there, I think they're capitalized in all your translations, that's just a standard way in Paul's day of talking about the Bible. They didn't call the Bible the Bible. That came later. They called it the law, the law and the prophets, the law, the prophets, and the writings. So Paul's point is that as the Bible told us, God would make a way for us to live with him by producing the kind of righteous living that we need if we are to enter into life with God. And in Jesus, we see that God does this by living righteously in our place. So here, this, is, this question comes up. Kids, you probably had it. Have you ever wondered why Jesus had to be born and live a human life? Why didn't Jesus just, you know, come down from heaven as a human man, fully adult, and just go straight to the cross and be done with it? Why was he born? And then why was he raised, like you're being raised, as a human child? And then why did he live for, you know, 30 to 35 years? We don't know exactly. And then why was he crucified? And the answer to that is... Because Jesus needed to do all the righteous deeds that you and I failed to do. He needed to be that perfect child. He needed to be that perfect teenager and that perfect young adult. He needed to be the perfect human. He needed to do all the deeds that you and I did not do. When you and I were lying, Jesus needed to be the one who was telling the truth. When you and I were stealing, Jesus needed to be the one protecting his neighbor. When we were worshiping idols, Jesus needed to be the one being loyal to the Father, even at the Garden of Gethsemane, where loyalty to the Father made him sweat blood and beg for a different path, and then say, not my will, but yours be done. That level of loyalty that we needed to show and didn't, Jesus showed on our behalf. Jesus lived righteously in our place. And by the way, if you're ever reading in a book or reading blogs on the internet, reform blogs, which you shouldn't do, and you come across the active obedience of Christ, that's what that means. Jesus living in your place. And then Jesus dies in our place. As Paul says in verses 23 through 25 of chapter 3, I'm going to read those again. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift. And by the way, grace means gift. So Paul is saying, by his gift as a gift. There are two different words for gift there, but the point is like, this is a huge gift. It's the present of presence. By his grace as a gift, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a, I know this is a big word, kids, propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. And propitiation by his blood means that Jesus took the curse of justice in our place. Propitiation means to satisfy justice's demands. It's saying Jesus died in our place. And so here's the picture. You go to court. You're convicted of murder. You're sentenced to death. And then this guy comes up and he says, Hey, look, I've never murdered anyone. And in fact, if you examine my life, you'll see that I've saved and protected every life I've ever come in contact with. I am 
literally perfect. I want to change places with him. Give him my identity. Give him my name, my bank accounts. Let him have all the credit for my perfect life. All of it. And then give me his identity. Give me all the judgment for his murder. Give him my life and rewards. I'll take his judgment and death in his place. If you've heard the word imputation or credit, as uh, you'll read in a lot of the translations, credit to the account, that's what this means. Jesus is saying, I want to take your place. And this is why the Bible talks about God seeing Jesus when he looks at you and me. The gift of justification is Jesus giving us his identity and everything he earned as the perfect son of God and then taking our identity, everything we've earned as self-righteous sinners. It's why Paul will say in 2 Corinthians 5.21 that God made him who knew no sin to become sin in our place that we might become the righteousness of God. The great exchange. That is how God actually accomplishes our forgiveness. He does it by justifying us while we were sinners and hypocrites. Though we deserve judgment and death and still do, he sets us free from judgment and death and brings us into eternal life by taking our place. And as Paul says in verse 26, this then allows God to be both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. The demands of justice are met and the mercy of God are met and they're given to us through Jesus. In Christ, the righteousness of God and the mercy of God meet in fellowship, which is what the Old Testament told us they would do. And then how do we receive that gift? Well, we receive it through faith. As Paul tells us in verse 24, we are justified through faith in Jesus. Uh, now it's important, it's so important to notice that Paul explicitly contrasts faith and works in verse 28. He says, I'm going to read this verse here. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. And here's why that contrast is so important. God wants us to make sure that we understand we are not getting life. We are not getting Jesus. We are not getting forgiveness because we've been good enough. We are not forgiven because we have uh, loved sufficiently to earn Jesus. Remember, as we explored, when we kind of looked at chapters 1 and 2, the best life cannot make up for the sins that we've committed, committed, and it certainly can't earn God from taking on human flesh so that he can live for us and die for us. How, how good would you have to be to get God to humble himself and become a poor baby in a manger? And then if you were good enough, why would he need to do that? That's what makes faith different. Faith, Paul says, is not a good work that we do. It is trusting in the good works Jesus did. It's trusting in Jesus. It's resting on the life and death of Jesus as our only hope for forgiveness and for transformation and for eternal life. 
And here's one reason why that matters. If forgiveness was something that we could earn, then it would also be something we could unearn. Right? If we have to be good enough to get forgiveness, we have to remain good enough to keep being forgiven. And if that was the case, we're all going to hell. But God doesn't justify the righteous in Jesus. He justifies the sinner. <laughs> he, he justified me as a sinner. And he keeps justifying me and you. Every day, Jesus gives you his righteousness. Every day, he gives you his identity because we don't get Jesus through our works. We get him through trusting in his. This is the gift of God, the gift of gifts. Every day through faith in Jesus, I get his righteousness given to me for free because he loves me. I get his death given to me so that justice's demands are satisfied on my behalf for free to me because he loves me. Which means every day I get to live before God like I am his eternal son. Because he loves me. And this is why Paul is so moved by justification. It's why it's a truth that got buried so deeply in his soul. It's why he devoted his life to talking about it. Paul recognizes that he has received something he could never earn by his works. That he could never keep by his works. It's only something that could be given and that only a God who is truly merciful, a God whose mercy truly soars above the highest heavens and descends below the lowest depths of our sin would give. It's a gift that covers our failures. It's a gift that covers our hypocrisy. It's a gift that frees us from guilt because we have been set free from judgment. And that then allows us to begin, again, the task of loving God and our neighbor in freedom and in joy every day. And it's the gift that gives me the opportunity and you the opportunity to work at forgiving others as Christ Jesus has forgiven us. Praise God for his justification. Let's pray that he would write his truth deeply on our hearts. Amen. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, thank you that through Jesus we are justified and forgiven. Uh, please help us to really understand and be moved by what you have done for us in Christ so that we can see more fully just how good and merciful and loving you, you are, uh, just how generous and kind you are to us. And please also teach us how to live out of our justification with the excitement that comes from knowing uh, that because of Jesus, your forgiving mercies to us are new every morning. And please also teach us, we pray, the joy that comes from learning to forgive others as we ourselves have been forgiven through Christ. In whose name we pray. Amen.